Welcome, everyone, to the new web series and podcast, Truth Matters, a show that's created for those who are seeking the truth in a world of increasing deception and strategic misinformation. This program is the latest series by Amazing Discoveries, who for over three decades has worked tirelessly to become one of the most trusted names in the work of exposing the dark underbelly of the world and reporting on information that, quite frankly, others won't. All this is to help people uncover powerful truth and life-changing information. My name is Matthew Shawnshay. Alongside me is Mackenzie Drebit and Walter Fight. Together, Mackenzie and I have combined for over 20 years of studying and covering the topics of global power structures, the occult and secret societies, and their historical context as they relate to what's happening today. Joining us is one of the world's leading experts on the occult, and the inner workings of secret society, who for over 40 years has been giving lectures across the world, giving those who have heard him real, tangible evidence for who's running the world and what the goals are for these people. So if you're the type of person who's feeling like something is wrong with the world, but you're not exactly sure what it is, if you're sitting there looking at 2020 and and noticing that things have gotten really strange really quickly, and you want to get to the bottom of what's really going on and why, this program is for you. Today can be the start of your journey to an absolutely amazing discovery. So let's peel back the layers of what's been covering the truth from the eyes and the ears of those who deserve to know it. Our goal is to present real people, real places, and real events that answer the driving question, which in today's program is our secret societies real and what role are they playing in global events? Walter McKenzie, thank you guys so much for joining this important program. Thank you very much. And thank you, Walter, for joining us uh, as well. I think we're going to have a, a lot pleasure. of very interesting things to talk about today. So, McKenzie, you know, when, when you and I were talking about uh, starting this program with Walter, w- what's the type of person? that you thought of that would really be helped by some something like this? Well, going back, uh, there's a lot of things that are happening in the world this year, especially, that people don't have a lot of answers for. Um, I, I know some people who there's only a few things that they think to themselves, either that they don't like certain politicians, that they like certain politicians, but they don't actually know what's really going on. And some of the things that they're seeing uh, behind the scenes or so-called is uh, QAnon, this secret organization, no one really knows what they're doing. But is that really like the end product? Is is that really all we're looking for? Is that... um, we don't like certain people and that they have this ring. What is this this thing that people are looking to? Because they know that something's wrong. They don't like what's being done. They see that things are being done are, don't seem right, but that's about as far as it goes. They don't know where to go from there. They don't know what they're looking for. Yeah, and it seems like most people, when you ask them who's running the world and why, you'll get answers like it's the banking cartels, it's the large corporation and tech companies, it's, it's governments. But Walter, if you were to 
try to help frame someone's mindset who may not fully understand what role these people have with these other organizations, these more secretive organizations, what, what kind of mindset would you, would you help that person have to understand the type of, of conversation we're going to have here? Well, that which you hear in the world, that which is portrayed by the media, that which sets the mindset for people to say it's the banking cartels or it's uh, a secret society behind a secret society or it's the Zionists, whatever it is that you're seeing and that is impressing you is probably not what's running the show. Because uh, if you really want to be secret, then you have to set up front organizations. And front organizations bear the brunt of whatever feelings people have or emotions or, or whatever thoughts they have. And the front organization uh, acts like a lightning rod. They take the strike when the real movers and shakers behind the scenes get away scot-free. So basically what we're, we need to do is separate those fronts from the actual organization or society and what their, their real thoughts or and ideologies are behind that. Absolutely. And I think it's important that our viewers and listeners understand that we're taking you on a very specific journey. We want to show you exactly who is sitting at the top of this hierarchy. And we're going to do so by giving you as much information and context as we can uh, to get you to understand what we're seeing in today's society, what are the tr different mechanisms and triggers that are currently being pulled and are going to be pulled here very soon um, on a national and global level. But to do that, I, I kind of wanted to get your guys' perspective on what role does understanding history play in deciphering what's happening today. For some people, they say history is in the past. It doesn't matter. Why, why would I need to know anything about history? Can you guys shed some light on, on the importance of understanding history to understanding what's happening today? Well, what is history all about? History is a record of events that have taken, ta taken place in the past to shape events in the future. And history builds upon history. It is not true that people do not learn from history. People do gain experience. And uh, if you have a sinister objective, then history will teach you how best to conceal yourself. And if we look at wars and we look at the results of wars and we see the reshaping of society, there is no doubt that a very fragmented world of the past has moved closer and closer towards a global agenda. And issues are being presented to the world which make a global agenda imperative. So who's moving behind the scenes in order to coordinate such a vast undertaking? And that's why a study of history and the way in which things proceeded from individual countries to empires to global empires is something that needs to be studied. So in, in, in history, we see, do we see, Walter, if you could give your input on this, because um, you referenced 
global, these global organizations or global agendas. So we're seeing a lot more now about, oh, the whole world, we need to unite. We need to be universal. We need to do this one world getting together as one. Um, but where do we see that kind of coming in from history? It's always been a goal to have dominance, no matter which empire rose in the past, the goal was global dominance. It never succeeded. And therefore it was more and more necessary to work behind the scenes to make sure that it will succeed. If people work at cross purposes, there can be no unity. There can be no globalism once individualism strives. So by hook or by crook, individualism must be reduced and globalism must be increased. And for that you need a propaganda machine and it has to be a universal propaganda machine. Yeah, because right now, I mean, so if we have this one world, you referenced uh, ancient kingdoms and powers and uh, uh, civilizations that were trying to dominate universally. So, but with now, how do we see this universal dominance because we have all these separate little countries in the world and and uh how is there this one power that's trying to dominate that so is there a connection here between all these these different countries these different uh powers well if you look at the world today you might have all these countries which seem to be separate from each other but all of them are connected by one media. There's only one media system. There's only one major news uh, organization in the world from which all news is disseminated to the entire world. If you had to put all the television screens of the world of the various countries side by side, you'd hear the same rhetoric, the same pictures, the same news, the same propaganda, adapted uh, proportionally to whatever nation it is, but is, is the same information. And it is information that moves people in a certain direction. And I find it interesting that we're sitting here in 2020, we're talking about history as it relates to current events, and that there's been this current of some power as it seemingly changes through history, but the, the goal remains the same, which is global unification and domination. Now, we've seen this year alone, maybe some of the most um, uh, widespread unification when it comes to how countries have handled the current health crisis. Can we use what we're seeing today as almost a, maybe a mechanism uh, by which to bring about unification, maybe not in the traditional sense of uh, powers overcoming and overtaking other world powers, that we're actually seeing this same strategy implemented, the same goal being implemented using uh, maybe different means with the, with the public pandemic? Well, I, I, remember, I remember back when 9-11 uh, was happening that it was referenced as an opportunity to invoke change. So uh, we have this now universal platform to invoke some sort of change. 
Now, what that change is, is the big question. It's interesting that people that have a very clear global agenda in the past, like Henry Kissinger, for example, is known to have said that a major crisis would unite the world. Now the question is, the major crisis that we have, or those that will come, are they as real as they appear to be, or are they steered by some outside source? And it's interesting that the various countries in this global pandemic that we've had, had different strategies. And the argument was that some countries failed and some countries did not fail because there was no global strategy. It's a very strange argument because who can guarantee that a global strategy will be the correct one and not the individual one? So it, in my opinion, if there were many, many varieties of approaches, the one that works is the one that you can learn from. To have a global one from the beginning is not necessarily a guarantee that it will be the right one. So then we see a lot of people commenting, uh, or at least it's, it's almost a movement of people commenting, not just individuals, saying that we need a global fix or we need a global movement, an individual one isn't going to work. So who then is the one initiating these, these thoughts, these comments? Because that doesn't come from people. People are, are at least right now, still very nationalist. I'm you know, very American or very Canadian or very whatever country you want to put there. Um, so w w how are we getting this shift well, let me say that it's very multifaceted. There isn't one solution for a particular crisis. They, they seem to have connected them to many, many issues. It's not just a health crisis. It's a climate crisis. It's not just a climate crisis. It is an ideological crisis. You have the secular world. You have the economic world. You have the religious world. You have the atheistic world, you have the humanist world, and everybody is clamoring for a portion of the pie. How do you arrange that pie so that everybody is satisfied, but the, the mechanism is moving in a particular direction? That takes a strategy that is almost over and beyond any form of individual strategy we're seeing this push by a lot of very influential people and they're all having the the same message so obviously they're having the same thoughts and they're connected in some way ideologically on these things in whatever facet it may be because like you said it's more than one issue but somehow from the majority anyways they're all talking about the same things and it's the same solution so they must be connected ideologically somehow. You just have to look at the television screens and look at the faces that regularly appear. Uh, those people must be somehow intertwined in the process. Then you have to ask yourself the question, do these people act independently as you look at them, 
or do they on occasion meet in secret uh, conclaves? Are there movements in the world where the elite amongst government, the elite amongst religion, the elite amongst the sporting world, the elite amongst the economic and the banking world, all come together in one forum to discuss issues. And uh, anybody who has even the slightest knowledge of these things will know that certain names come to mind then. For example, the Bilderbergers, a very secret meeting of all these high-flying individuals. But the question is, who coordinates the Bilderbergers? There must be a coordinating committee. It's not that these people radiate towards each other all by themselves. So the question again is, who runs the Bilderbergers? And who runs those that run the Bilderbergers, etc.? So you have to go down this rabbit hole to find the very source of all of these things. And that is, I think, what you guys are trying to achieve with this program. And I think it's important that we see these ideological connections move outside of the organizations that these people are a part of. So you'll see that past presidents or former heads of state or uh, heads of banking, the World Bank International Monetary Fund, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission. A lot of these are, are, are trigger names for people who have done some light research on these things. But what where we really see the ideological alignments come in seems to be when we cross this threshold into their outside of their public life or public positions. And we start to find some very interesting relationships happening behind the scenes. And so I, I kind of want to take us back in history a little bit and show that this is this is not uh, a new event. This is not a new byproduct of modern society. And I'd like to use an event that most people are familiar with, but probably know very little about the real history of. And that's Friday the 13th. And this is a, a day known by most people as something that's very um, spooky or has some strange, negative, dark connotations to it. But I think if we look at the origin story of Friday the 13th, we can see some of these societies, one very prominent society at the time, uh, having a very public historic event that is uh, allows for conjecture or speculation to be put aside because we actually see that history has has played out. Can can Walter? Can you give us a little background on on the real story behind Friday the Thirteenth? Well, there was a man who was called Demolay, and this particular individual came. Uh, into conflict with the French government. And they belonged to a secret society which was called the Knights Templars. And these people had amassed huge fortunes and tremendous power by starting basically what is today the modern banking system with its interest and all of these issues uh, designed to create wealth. And once this organization had succeeded in gaining power over the wealth of not only the nobility, but basically over the entire populace, including governments and kings and rulers, 
then it came to the point where this organization was uh, demonized, rightly or wrongly, by the French government, and Demolay was sentenced to death. And this date on which these events took place became a very prominent uh, feature in secret societies. And today, that day is, shall we say, celebrated or shall we say uh, remembered with regret by calling it the day of bad luck depending from which side you are coming whether you're coming from the light side or the dark side and uh, yes Friday the 13th becomes uh, sort of entrenched in the minds of people it's interesting if you if you get onto an airplane there is no row 13 so <laughs> people are afraid of that number and some people embrace that number. Well, it is a fact of history that these organizations didn't just disappear overnight, but morphed and uh, were represented by other organizations and incorporated and expanded. And all that happened was that something that was a little bit more visible became a little bit more invisible. Okay, so we, we see a connection here to a secret society with this very prominent date that everybody at least has heard of or knows as bad luck, not necessarily knowing the history. Um, but like you said, what, what was the specific event that, that happened on Friday the 13th? It was the execution of Demolay. Now, if you, if you uh, go into a secret society like Freemasonry, for instance, they have a youth brigade which is called the Demolays. Now, why would they use that name so prominently? And why would such high-ranking politicians actually be involved in something like this? Uh, it is well known that a president such as Bill Clinton was a very uh, prominent in the Demolay movement, which is the youth movement of Freemasonry. So if these people were as, uh, had such negative connotations, then why do societies today still employ that name and uh, run their, their youth brigades under that banner? Well, and obviously if they have that name and it's under that banner, then they know the history behind that date and that name as well. Absolutely, and this is how you follow the clues. It's like, uh, you know, it's like a quest game. A very, very tricky quest game. <laughs> it seems like while the rest of the world is kind of stuck in their what's happening today mode, these groups, these organizations, and, and subsequently the high-ranking people that are part of these organizations, and we're going to dive a little bit deeper into, you know, what people are part of these groups and and why they would be a part of them but those organizations really seem to be sharp on their history and their um idea behind numerology and astrology uh so we we see that there's they really highly value history and and information where today i'd say the general public is probably not so inclined to pay attention and and just for reference 
Friday the 13th, the, the, the massacre, uh, was in the 13th century. So we, as people are saying, well, the, the people who run the world are these, are these bankers. Well, let's trace this back to who are the original bankers. Where were the very, very first concept of banking, of, uh, of usury and protecting one's assets? And we, we find this, uh, was, was Knights Templar a military organization? Or, or what gave them the status to become these bankers? They were, they were knights. And as knights, obviously, they had a military they had a military role, and they were appointed by the church. And in the in the Middle Ages, when you had the Crusades, that is when the Knights Templars, according to their name, were the knights that uh, guarded the temple site in Jerusalem. But they became very influential because of their banking expertise. And they were the first ones to introduce usury. But they, they did it in a very clever way to circumvent church law, which actually prohibits usury. And so they developed a system whereby huge profits were gained and they, they, they gained tremendous power, not only in terms of their military role, but also in terms of their economic role. And uh, it, is, it is probably a fact of history that all of these great financial institutions are somehow run by one organization behind the scenes and have a total control over global finance. So what you see happening is not what everybody thinks is happening because the cycles that are taking place in the economic world are so regulated and so regular that you can almost put dates on when there will be ups and when there will be downs, when it will be bullish and when it will be bearish and what the currency values are and all of these issues. It is a monstrous creature but who controls it? And I think most people would just go under the assumption that that's just naturally how it falls. It, we have this fluctuation up and then it goes down and they take that for granted and they just think that's how it's always been. That's how I've always known it. It's way too complicated for me to understand. So then they don't look at it any farther. They just think it is how it is. We have to ask ourselves a question. If this is all the figment of somebody's information, then why have such high-ranking politicians such as presidents of the United States and other countries so often referred to them? Why did uh, Abraham Lincoln already warn against uh, these organizations that were undermining the, the powers that be. Why did uh, JFK warn against issues like this? Why did uh, the, the George Bushes refer to secret societies and their powers? Why did religious institutions uh, warn against them? If they are irrelevant, why all these warnings? And why did some presidents even refer to a sinister power behind the power 
where it would be dangerous to even in a whisper refer to them. There must be something behind it. Where there is smoke, there is a fire. Let's take the chance to actually listen to a speech from JFK in 1961, where he uh, refers to exactly what Walter is, is talking about here. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. But I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local, confident that with your help, Man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. It's quite incredible that in the 1960s we have a, the President of the United States, who I imagine if we were in, say, a court of law, an eyewitness testimony, and a high-ranking official of his nature would be taken as the highest form of evidence. Uh, Walter, what kind of system? Is this the same system that is manipulating, you mentioned the markets going up and down. Is this system controlling all these different aspects of our society, including the financial markets and maybe even uh, our, our spiritual daily lives? Is there, is there that much control, as he alluded to, in the scientific community and in the intelligence community? That, is that same power still active and manipulating today as they were in, in, clearly in the 1960s? Absolutely. But it's so subtle that even sometimes those that are 
uh, involved at the highest level do not understand the machinations behind it. You know, it's interesting that all of these things happen uh, in the name of freedom and independence. Who defines the freedom? Who defines the independence? Uh, which organization and which ideology determines what freedom is? Do they set boundaries for the freedom? Is freedom perhaps something that is only to be aligned with some common denominator? And what is that common denominator and who defines it? And this is something that affects every single person on the planet. And everybody has to ask themselves the question, once this great ideology is implemented, will it actually enhance my freedom or will it curtail it or will it eradicate it? And that is something that everybody should be concerned about. And in fact, everybody is becoming concerned, but they don't know exactly what the solution is. So we, we made reference to a lot of different things in the last little while. Um, alluded to the markets, that maybe that's even controlled by organizations. Then we have uh, uh, JFK having this reference where he's putting a negative light toward these secret societies. And he was referencing in a lot of facets of our life. So what... Uh, what examples can we have? Because we see a lot of, of separate things or things that are labeled as um, negative but are more pinned to uh, smaller organizations or people. And how can we connect that to these, these actual organizations or what this uh, reference is from John F. Kennedy? Some people say you follow the money trail. Uh, it's an old adage, he who pays the piper calls the tune. So you might follow the money and you'll end up with the banking cartels and say, all right, that's the one who pays. That's the one who finances governments. That's the one who finances economic bailouts. You might go up to the International Monetary Fund and you ask yourselves, well, where do they get the money from? They also get it from the banking cartels, but they stand at a higher level. Is there another level above that? And this is the important thing about secret societies. They're all based on a pyramid system. They have a very, very broad base with many, many sub-organizations. Then the base gets smaller as you rise up on the pyramid. And eventually you get to the very top of the pyramid. And uh, in most of the depictions of this pyramid, there is an eye, an all-seeing eye in the top of the pyramid. And what we are trying to achieve here, or what I assume you are wanting to achieve is, who does that eye belong to? And why is there only one eye? And why is that eye in capstone separate from the rest of the base? Uh, seems to be an interesting aspect of that particular imagery. I want to just give a little context to what we're referring to here. One example of this symbol that we're talking about can be found on the American 
U.S. dollar bill. Uh, it's one of the emblems that's on the back of the dollar bill. It has a pyramid. It has different words surrounding it, um, which aren't in English. And uh, the capstone is, is separated, glowing, and it has an eye in it. Going back to this, because people may not know, they see this on the dollar bill all the time, but they just shake it off. Where Who came up with this concept, like this imagery? Where does this come from? Well, I was just going to say, uh, add some context. Last I checked, as, as an American citizen, I haven't ever seen any pyramids in the United States. So I think a lot of people would ask, how does something like that with that imagery end up on on the back of a dollar bill does it have any relation to what we're talking about here who brought that design forward to uh to be such an iconic symbol on american currency today well we started this program with history and uh we asked the question does history play a role where do you find a pyramid you find it in in many places in the world and the most prominent one today, of course, where they still survive is Egypt. But the Egyptian ones are just a, a relic, if you like, or a copy of something that preceded them. And you have the ziggurats in ancient Babylon. So basically, you can trace them back to Babylon. Well, and it's interesting because it, it brings up that the, I did some research many years ago about who actually brought this design to the table? Because when you really think about the process, it doesn't just a accidentally end up on the back of a, of a currency. It must have gone through design and approval and design and approval to end up there. And, and you find a, an interesting organization hiding behind that and an interesting person behind that design who happens to be uh, a Freemason, uh, uh, part of the Freemason society. Uh, when we look at Lady Liberty or the Statue of Liberty, we see that was given to us, the American people, by a, a Freemason. So we're starting to kind of circle around this organization of the, of the Freemasons. And, and before we, we jump in, I'd like to kind of have our listeners and our, our viewers do a little exercise with us. If you could open a search engine, type in your town name, and type in Masonic Lodge afterwards. Because I think about 95% of the people who take this exercise and actually do it will find that there's going to be, no matter how big or how small their town is, most likely there's going to be a Masonic Lodge in their area. Why would that be? Why would a, a Masonic Lodge seem to be appearing, in at least in North America, in, in almost every city in the country. And if you go to some of the cities in the United States of America, you will find the Masonic sign on uh, the offices of public office. You will find them on police doors. You will find them on public buildings. You will find them on the capstones of most of the major public buildings. And if you go back in history to George Washington, he laid the foundations of many of the buildings with the Masonic capstone. So yes, and uh, the, as you mentioned, the dollar note, that was brought in by vice presidents of the United States. 
and placed on the dollar note. So these things have a long history and you can trace them, as we said, all the way back to a philosophy which originated in ancient Babylon. When you look at some of the layout of a city like Washington, D.C., there's an interesting book called The Secret Architecture of Washington, D.C., and you'll find that whole cities have been designed to mimic Masonic emblems, Masonic symbolism, uh, Masonic geometric structures inside of the Washington Monument. We find very interesting Masonic symbolisms. And in fact, the Washington Monument itself has some hearkening to ancient Egypt and ancient Babylon. Uh, uh, how does how does somebody pull that off? I mean, we're talking about a whole city and some of the most iconic images and monuments in American history having such connection with this one organization, the Freemasons, into what seems like Egyptian and, and Babylonian cultures. Power begets power. You don't get into the echelons of power unless you have the access to that power or the power has access to you. It seems to be all very free and democratic. But in actual fact, when you go down that rabbit hole, there is no free democratic system in the world. It is steered. And uh, that becomes pretty obvious. You just have to look at a simple thing like bloodlines, for example. And you can, uh, you can do a search, as you said, on the, on the search engines to see uh, what the echelons of power in the United States, for example, entails. How are they related? And you will see that they all run according to certain bloodlines, which is way beyond chance. Well, and to that end, um, we're on the eve of a uh, maybe the most interesting uh, presidential election in history. What many people don't know, though, is in a previous U.S. presidential election, we had two presidential candidates, John Kerry and George Bush, both of whom were part of the organization known as Skull and Bones at Yale. And both actually admitted as much. Let's take a listen to John Kerry and George Bush uh, admit that they were part of a secret organization called Skull and Bones. You both were members of Skull and Bones, a secret society at Yale. What does that tell us? Uh, not much because it's a secret. <laughs> Is there a secret handshake? Is there a secret code? I wish there were something secret I could manifest. 322, a secret number? Uh, there are all kinds of secrets, Tim, but one thing is not a secret. I disagree with this president's direction that he's taking the country. We can do a better job, and I intend to do it. And we'll be watching Be Safe on the Campaign Trail. John Kerry, thanks yes, for joining us, and we'll be right back. You were both in Skull and Bones, the secret society. It's so secret we can't talk about it. What does that mean for America? The conspiracy theorists are going to go watch. I'm sure they are. I don't know. I haven't seen the record. Number 322. <laughs> uh, first of all, he's not the nominee. And, uh, but, uh, look, I look for. Are you prepared to lose? No, I'm not going to lose. When we take into context what we're seeing here, there were two presidential candidates running against each other. 
admitting that they were both from the same organization and that the nature of that organization was so secretive that they wouldn't even answer questions other than saying that it's a secret. And I think that really shapes with our viewers here that what we're talking about is not a figment of the imagination. We see JFK when he told us in his speech that it combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations, that this is something that we need to dive into deeper. And it's also very interesting to see that we have apparently two opposing parties, but they're both part of the same organization, secret organization, behind the scenes, which we'll take a closer look at in the next episode. Uh, Mackenzie, Walter, thanks for joining. We're going to go a little bit deeper next time. We'll see you guys soon.